This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Kai Emmons, author of three novels, His Mother's Son, The Stylist, and most recently, Weather Woman. Before Emmons began writing fiction, she was a dramatist and worked in film. She teaches fiction and screenwriting at the University of Oregon. Her novel, Weather Woman, tells the story of Bronwyn Artaire, who is at MIT earning a PhD in atmospheric sciences until she suddenly quits her research to become a TV meteorologist and discovers she has an ability to change the weather. We began the discussion with Emmons explaining the impetus for this novel. Well, I think it's a it's a novel that has been brewing for many years and possibly even in a way since childhood, because I've always been interested in the weather and excited by extreme weather, not scared of it, but just kind of excited about, you know, snow, blizzards that kept us home from school and hurricanes. And I didn't see much of tornadoes back east, but uh, at any rate, I always was excited by it. And I think I actually had many experiences of feeling I could control, if not the weather, at least the clouds, you know, lying around in my lying in a meadow and kind of looking up and thinking, oh, I moved that cloud. And then, of course, there were many times when I I really did want to change the weather. For example, at Halloween, when it was cold and I had to wear a, a coat over my costume or another time was I, I got married in the rain in late May, and I really didn't want to be get, um, getting married in the rain, but I couldn't do much about it. So I think that urge has been with me for a long time. And uh, it probably came to fruition because I was thinking a lot about the extreme weather that we have from climate change and and how useful it would be these days to really be able to do that. Your main character, Bronwyn Arter. Basically, she is a researcher at, at MIT and in a doctorate program, and that's, you know, very prestigious and very scientific. And she ends up leaving this to become a meteorologist for a TV station in New Hampshire. She's very smart, but I would say not very confident and and really not very confident in her skills with people, which is part part of why she drops out of the program. She's kind of tortured there by some of the some of the guys in the program. She's sort of ridiculed in part because she's the favorite of her mentor, Diane Fenwick. So I I wanted her to have this timidity and kind of her life is sort of run amok a, a little bit at the beginning of the book because her boyfriend dumps her and she's dropped out of this program much to the dismay of her mentor. And, um, so she's, she's kind of not feeling very confident. So I thought the contrast between a character who was feeling really um, down on her luck and not very confident to begin with, having suddenly this extreme power, um, I, I liked that contrast. Her first deed to change the weather is kind of like a good deed for a friend, a coworker of hers, where her coworker is just is getting married and she more than anything doesn't want it to rain. And it's been a really rainy, unusually rainy summer in New Hampshire. And she, Bronwyn had had one experience where she had sort of an interaction with the weather by herself. And then basically on this woman's wedding day goes off and does this charitable deed. 
<laughs> yes, I, I um, of course, you know, you can already make that connection to my own autobiography, my own autobiography. I wanted her to start small and then sort of grow bigger in in uh, in the scope of what she tries to do. And it seemed like uh, changing the weather at that wedding was a good small um, effect that she could bring about. Um, it's not actually the first thing, if you, but it is, as you say, the first really self-conscious thing that she does uh, with her ability. And, you know, one of the things that I considered throughout the novel was, should she do something really terrible and vengeful um, that hurts people or hurts people who have hurt her? Um, and I, you know, I considered that that is kind of maybe the, the traditional path for a, a quote, superhero story. But for one thing, I realized I wasn't really writing a superhero story. And for another thing that didn't really fit with the character that I had created. She, she, even though she has been hurt, it, it's not her impulse to, to want to strike back. So it would have been very false for her to do that. As she travels along, she goes to a place where there's a lot of tornadoes and meets one of her idols who kind of dismisses her. And I think underneath this was a question for me of the desire for recognition or not, because I don't think she really sought out to be recognized. She certainly wasn't looking for fame, but on some level, recognition and affirmation are the same. And I'm wondering if you thought about that concept. I did very much, actually. Um, One of the things that is so disturbing to her about the guy in Oklahoma not believing her, Vince Carmichael, is that she feels she has built up in her head. I mean, she's never met him before she goes to uh, see him. And but she's seen him on television a lot and, and kind of had this feeling of great affinity for him. So it's very disturbing. She's almost thought we're the part of the same tribe. So it's very disturbing when he doesn't believe her because she uh, she feels like, well, he's he's the most obvious person who would be- believe me. I mean, he's he we're going to be friends and we're going to take this the world on together. So that's I mean, that's a, a real turning point for her in the story. But in general, no, she's not seeking affirmation from the world. Uh, only those she's close to. Like, I mean, she would like her mentor to believe in her, but of course that's kind of a very hard conversation to have with somebody who is is uh, so much of a believer in data and uh, not likely to believe that she can do this kind of outlandish supernatural thing. So that's it. So um, she, yes, she does seek kind of um, affirmation, but not wide affirmation, if you know, you know, not fame, certainly not fame. So you had mentioned her mentor. So her mentor, Diane, is she is deeply scientific. She is a woman of science. She needs data to prove things. She is everything has to be very concrete. So she is a big um, she's a big wall that Bronwyn keeps hitting up against in terms of wanting connection, wanting someone to believe her, but also knowing she won't. Can you talk a little bit about Diane's character? Yes, I, um, I'm i very fond of Diane, actually. I see her as a person who has worked her way up through the system in, in a, you know, and confronted, uh, you know, difficult men, but not let that bother her. 
um, and achieved a position of fairly high status. Uh, she knows she she knows what she's talking about. She knows her research, um, and yet she also has this deeply maternal uh, feeling towards Bronwyn. She recognizes Bronwyn's talent, although when she recognizes Bronwyn's talent, she doesn't recognize it for what it truly is. She has taught Bronwyn as an undergraduate and then has brought her into the program. Then she moved um, to, an, uh, to MIT and she brought Bronwyn to MIT after she graduated from her undergraduate program. And um, she has filled the role of surrogate mother for Bronwyn. And she, uh, Diane doesn't have any children. So I was interested in this kind of dual intellectual emotional relationship that has been thriving and then you know Bronwyn kind of has to cut it off for a while in order to make the move to New Hampshire take that new job and then also once she discovers this power it makes it you know even harder to to approach Diane and and discuss anything with her because Diane still holds hope hopes that um, Bronwyn will go back to the PhD program and as Bronwyn, after she worked on her magic, on her powers, on the wedding, she moved to more important subjects like trying to stop tornadoes from killing people and, and moved on to wildfires in California. So she's really taking on weather events and climatic consequences of climate change and going bigger and bigger with what she can do. So she is overtaken by this desire to do good deeds right she she is and um and at some point i mean and she wants them not to be trivial but there are always questions built into that um that have to do with you know how far afield is her effect really being felt and or how far afield could it be felt i mean that's particularly true when she gets to siberia and then also, are there any repercussions from what she is doing? And that, you know, that comes up most particularly when she is um, putting out the fires in California and then um, she brings on a little rain in order, in order to calm things down and then there are, and it somehow gets out of control and she ends up creating a sort of a minor flood in which an older woman dies. And um, she just can't get over that. That I mean, it, it makes suddenly it makes what she does seem so unpredictable and um, potentially harmful. Even though you know the uh, Matt certainly tries to convince her that there's a, a greater good in it all, but um, it, it's it's conflictual to say the least. There are unintended consequences of good deeds. Yes, yeah, that is true. Always, I think you know. I thought what was interesting was that as she comes into her own power, I think she forces those around her to face themselves more. So at first, she's at MIT, and even when she's at the TV station, she's just kind of a lackey. She's just working. She's under the power of other people. But as she comes not only into her power but claims it and states what it is— other people in her life have to face themselves. Diane is one of them, you know, her scientist friend who basically she is scientific and she needs proof. But eventually she got that proof. And with that proof, she switched. Yes, you're right. And she she, too, had to sort of look into I mean, it was disturbing to her, but she had to look into 
her own past and you know she remembered back to that that experience she had in Mexico where she saw uh, the child ran into the street and the, uh, the toddler and a, and a van fell on it and on the toddler. And then the father came out and lifted this humongous heavy van off the toddler. And it was just an, an unimaginable feat of strength. And, you know, she thinks back to it and thinks, well, there was a touch of the superhuman and supernatural in that effort. And it kind of, makes it possible for her. I mean, thinking back, it sort of helps calibrate what's happening to Bronwyn. But yes, you, there's a personal reckoning with her. And there's definitely also personal reckoning with Matt, um, Bronwyn's lover, who is forced to give up. I mean, when he meets Bronwyn and is so taken with her and then has to consider maybe she really does have this power, um, he, he gives up his job working for this tabloid, writing these, um, these stories that are basically lies or, or exact huge exaggerations. And he, he doesn't feel good about himself doing that, but it's only when he meets Bronwyn that he, he decides that he really has to stop doing that. Yeah. He's definitely one that he is forced to face himself. He originally meets her cause he's working for this national Enquirer type of, of journal. I think it's called the meteor. The meteor, yeah. And and as he meets her and starts to believe her and then fall for her, he has to face his own shortcomings. And so this sort of in in concert with watching her come into her power and also watching her let go of all the things that don't serve her to come into her power and what that does for people around her, to me, seemed like such a good lesson for people who... Maybe they're complacent in their life. Maybe they're lost in their life. And there's so much fear about letting go to allow something new in. And she was kind of like a a good literary figure to maybe give courage to people. And I'm right. wondering if when you write fiction, if you think about those bigger lessons that people can take away. I mean, literally, they can think about climate change, but there's other things that you're offering. Right. I, I, I love that you brought this up because um, it is, I mean, there's a lot going on interpersonally in this book that is as important as the magical realism element and the climate change element. Really, that is perhaps the more important thrust of the book. I mean, we all know people who have served, uh, who have gone ahead of us or just been parallel in our lives and have have served as kind of examples of what the people we want to be. Um, and I, I do think that she is uh, quietly being that person for, for a lot of people, yes. Um, and, you know, thinking deeply about what it is she does and what she has to offer. And, and at the end, and really not allowing herself to be bullied by anybody, you know, whereas at the beginning, she is a little bit bullied by people. At the end, no. <laughs> As you get deeper into the book, it's not there's weather and there's climate. And I kind of think of yes. them as two things. And, you know, wh as she gets into these bigger climate incidences, like that the permafrost might be melting in Siberia and the methane gas that's being released there because it's melting is changing the temperature of the earth. And the wildfires are more related to climate than stopping rain at a weather, although they are all interconnected. 
And right. what's interesting for me is that Diane's search for proof was very necessary, and that proof changed her. But yes. proof has not changed many climate skeptics. That's true. That is so true. And ultimately, you know, one of the things that I was uh, interested in also as I was writing the book was how um, it's wrong to think of scientists as being slavishly devoted to data exclusively because they too often act on hunches and intuitions. And in fact, that often is the catalyst that gets them going on their research. So um, I wanted to, and and I, I think that that is something that at the end of the book, Diane would probably be willing, more willing to acknowledge than at the beginning of the book. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had a lot of, I thought about writing an article about this, which I haven't really written, but I started interviewing or just talking to scientists that I know and asking them about the role of intuition in their work. And it, it was very interesting because they all acknowledged it. Yes, yes, definitely. I'm I'm assuming that you're interested in, in climate change, and I, I've read that you've done a lot of research about it to write this book, but I'm wondering if writing this book made you feel deeper about something, changed anything in you, or you oh. found anything new? I did do all this research. Um, some of it was, I began, you know, with a lecture series about meteorology, that uh, a great courses lecture series that was an, an introduction, but it was still largely beyond me scientifically. It was a great place to begin, and I felt fairly grounded after that. And then I read things, you know, in physics and neuroscience, and then and then climate change, um, very specifically climate change. Man, I read so many good books, and many that I want to revisit. Um, one one was this wonderful book by uh, Craig Childs called Apocalyptic Planet. Oh, and I read a lot of books about clouds. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the research, um, and I was sort of doing it um, alongside the writing. I didn't sort of take time out to research. I I was doing it as I wrote. And the second part of that question, which is how has my my feeling about climate change changed over the course of writing the book and since I've written the book, it has changed a lot. And I and I think that part of that is because in in these last few years, the the world's relationship to climate change has changed a lot. And we have recognized it, many of us have recognized how dire the situation is, and yet there is, to a large degree, such lack of movement on the issue. And I, you know, the IPC, the recent IPCC report was so alarming and so, um, you know, posited that the dire consequences are going to be hitting us by 2040. And of course, they already are um, in the form of all these hurricanes and floods and whatnot. Um, not to mention fires that we've seen a lot about here. And I wish I could say that I felt more optimistic. I I don't think we have a strategy for dealing with it yet. And there are a lot of people who are looking towards technology and carbon capture and sequestration and that kind of thing as a final solution. But those technologies are so much in their infancy and so expensive to administer over vast distances that it, it right now it's not very realistic. Um, I guess I would have to say, and I really feel bad saying this, I feel a lot bleaker than I felt when I started. I hate to say that. I mean, not not so bleak that I don't, th I think everybody should just 
give up and not do anything because that's not at all the way I feel. But I feel like we need to, it, 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 we are, it, the task is Sisyphean at this point. We, we have to, but we still have to keep rolling that boulder up the hill and uh, work with 350.org and do what we can. And in particular, I think we have to think about things that we can do collectively because, um, you know, if a handful of people go out and buy electric cars or stop driving altogether or, you know, recycle more massively or whatever, that does not really address the global problem. We really need to cooperate. That's what I was getting to with the white fox at the end of the, the story who says to Bronwyn, where are your people? You know, you can't just do this alone. You need other people helping you. So at the end, Bronwyn's love interest, Matt, and Bronwyn and Diane all travel to Siberia. Diane's trying to get some data from a shared server that many countries are involved in getting data from these ice fields and climatic weather. And the Russian who's in charge is basically saying, you're not part of it anymore, and you can't have it. And this idea that the data belongs to everyone, but the climate belongs to everyone. And so that in the end, maybe she broke some laws to try to get the data to help prove that the climate change is really happening. And what kind of laws do we have to break if things keep changing in this country to either circumnavigate or go around to try to protect the climate and the earth that most people, I think, love. Yes, I know. It's it's a question that's really on my mind. I went not that long ago to, a, it was a climate day event that uh, put on by 350. Well, it was put on by a lot of different organizations, actually. And 350.org was doing these trainings or we were signing up to do trainings. And the, one of the questions they were asking us is, are you willing to be arrested um, in some of these actions that we might do? And um, so I, we didn't have to say right off the bat, but um, we, ha- we have to consider it. So I'm thinking about that question. <laughs> Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um, one of the writers that I've always loved, and I'll read anything she writes, is Alice McDermott. And um, I think one of the reasons I love her is she just has such a a sort of a humble approach to the lives she writes. She writes about humble people, and she has she's humble in her approach to them. And so I was I wanted to read the opening paragraph of one of her early novels called That Night. That night when he came to claim her, he stood on the lawn, on the short lawn before her house, his knees bent, his fists driven into his thighs, and bellowed her name with such passion that even the friends who surrounded him, who had come to support him, to drag her from the house, to murder her family if they had to, let the chains they carried go limp in their hands. Even the men from our neighborhood in Bermuda shorts or chinos, white t-shirts and gray suit pants, with baseball bats and snow shovels held before them like rifles, even they paused in their rush to protect her. The good and the bad, the black-jacketed boys and the fathers in their light summer clothes, startled for that one moment before the fighting began by the terrible, piercing sound of his call. Tell me a little bit more about why you chose that. 
Well, I like the novel so much because um, this this uh, paragraph, which opens onto a scene of this confrontation between these kind of hoodish guy hoodish guys who have come to get this girl who one of them is in love with, and the fathers, um, they have this confrontation, and it is observed by this young girl, and it becomes memorable for her, and it's emblematic of of sort of romantic love, and and. Then the narrator goes on. I mean, there's this almost a circular structure in this novel in that the, uh, the narrator keeps coming back to this one evening, this one event that she she watched and um, uses it to um, uses first person on omniscience to speculate about the lives of these two characters, Cheryl and Rick, and what happened in their relationship. The girl became pregnant and was sent away to to a home to have the baby and gave it up for adoption. But but the narrator doesn't really know all the details. She's completely imagining them. And it it's she's telling this story in the context of her own recent divorce and it um, and her disillusionment with love. And so I, I just think it's so it's quietly brilliant um, in the way it presents this one event as a as an occasion for reflecting on love. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was something tricky or or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like. Yes, um, one of the tricky things about writing this book was the the moment where reality gives way to fantasy. The, these little these moments where she actually changes the weather. And I, I had to really, there may be, I want to say, somebody said a dozen, and I was uh, recently, and I thought, really, is it that many? But I think it is about a dozen times. Um, and I wanted to make sure that what was happening was recognizable as a, as something that happens, that, that is her technique, but that was not also repetitive. I didn't want it to be repetitive each time. So... I'm going to read you one of the earlier ones, the one of the ones from early in the book, when she's on, on Mount Washington with her friend Lanny, and, uh, and she has thought that the weather was going to be fine, but she, an unpredictable storm comes up, as is, is often the case on Mount Washington. And so, um, okay, so the two of them are there, are there near the top of the mountain. An aura surrounds them cool and merciless, the beckoning arm of death. It is so senseless to die this way, accidentally, beneath nature's fist. She's overcome with fury, with a wish for things to be different than they are, furious for all the things she cannot change, beginning with this moment and bleeding back into everything else, Reed's disinterest, Stuart's stupidity, her mother's negativity. Another flash blanches the sky, stealing all dimensions but two. Scarcely a second passes before thunder cracks. Rain turns to hail, vitriolic and personal, each pellet hard hard as a falling Barbie head. Her rage spikes. Her brain seems to pucker and roll inside her skull. She sloughs her backpack and pushes herself to standing. What are you doing, Lanny shouts. Entangled in something, Bronwyn can hardly speak. Stay there, she croaks. Gripped by the storm, Enshrined in its clamor, she turns west to its source and folds herself into the symphonic chaos. Her chest throbs. She strains to keep her eyelids apart. 
Hail batters her cheeks. Red fills her vision. Clouds swirl around her, malevolent, evaporating tongues. She summons all her will, heaving with the effort, with rage and need. She hurls forth the volcanic heat in her brain, her eyes like rapiers jousting with the crazed molecules. She slides through a portal and is sundered from any sense of self she has known, wholly devoted to some other entity, hearing only her own strained breath, life at its limit. The mountaintop is still. Hailstones litter the rocks. The sun glistens. Tell me more about why you chose this. Okay, I chose it because um, because it's one of those sections where she where we move from a, a essentially realistic scene to something that is supernatural or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I struggled with it. And also, it's near the beginning of the book when she is not consciously doing this. She kind of almost slips into this state unwittingly. Later on in the book, there's a more consciousness about her moving into these episodes. But at this particular point, um, it's kind of rage and self-blame that takes her into it, and she suddenly is doing this thing. Um, So I don't know um, what it sounds like just hearing it as an isolated event like that. But um, anyway, I thought it, it would... It would be interesting to hear how I handled that aspect of the book. And the, the, um, the thing that is consistent from event to event is this sense of heat, a, a kind of a, a ball of heat rising from her belly up to her brain, and then a sense uh, that she uh, thrusts it forward, and then the sense that she really loses herself in, in the... Um, in the natural forces, I guess I would say, in the clouds or the the air or the, I mean, she really loses a sense of her own identity at that point. Where do you write? I write in bed. I um, we have a coffee maker in our in the bedroom, and we turn it on in the morning. And my partner brings me coffee, and he, he leaves, and I prop myself up and get right to work. And I I like. I don't, you know, I write longhand, and um, so I don't have to turn on my computer or deal with the possibility of any kind of email or texts or anything like that. So um, I just find that coming that writing as close to the dream state is is a good thing, and without any kind of interaction with the world. And and bed seems like a place where no one can interrupt me. Where do you go, or what do you do to get away from writing? Usually it's something physical. Either um, I, I go to yoga or I take a walk or sometimes I kayak or hike or whatever. But um, usually the physical will, will um, is very restorative, I find. And sometimes I, I never um, give, give myself an assignment when I'm on a walk or uh, between writing sessions. But sometimes that uh, does coax things to the forefront that I've been thinking about. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my partner, Paul, who um, is very attuned to what I'm aiming for. So he's pro- the, the best first stop. And he's a really good critic. He sees things that I don't see. And um, then after that, I have a, a small writing group, just two other people. And I, I usually show them next. And, and then a couple of co- close friends who are not writers, um, who are just readers. So, How have you dealt with rejection? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, before I before I was a fiction writer, I worked in film and um, faced a lot of rejection there, of course, as what any artist does. And but what I realized um, was that the recovery from rejection became quicker each time. And so I just learned to kind of ride through it, um, get used to it and, um, you know, think about it as a step closer to acceptance. I mean, I don't think there's any way you can kind of let it not affect you at all, but I do think that you can, you can definitely learn to let it not bring you down. And what is your favorite word? Oh, now, are you going to pin me down to a single word? (laughs) <laughs> no, I won't. Because <laughs> I love words. And uh, I, one thing I thought I would mention is that I, I do love contronyms, you know, words that have two opposite different meaning, off, opposite meanings like cleave or dust or sanction. But that's a whole different thing. If you have to pin me to one word, well, I'm going to say three. One word I like is calipigian, which is means having a comely buttocks. And it's not a word that is easy to use, but it's just a fun and funny word. And it's amazing that there is such a word. Um, So that's one that I like. And then I like, um, I was thinking of a couple of words that I like that have to do with weather. Um, Mizzle, which is a fine rain or drizzle, and broom, which is a fog. And those are just, I like the sound of those words, broom and mizzle. I often fall for a word because of its sound. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Kai Emmons, author of Weather Woman. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.